The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. Hello again, and welcome to the Thin Places podcast. I'm Father Lee. I'm the pastor at St. Aidan's Anglican Church, and I want to welcome you to our discussion today. So we're beginning a new series, and in this series we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation. With everything that is going on in the world around us, uh, we hear stories about apocalypse and the end of the world and predictions about what's going to bring about the end this time or next time. We hear that all around us all the time. We hear about it constantly. We're just inundated with uh, end-of-the-world apocalyptic images. When I was growing up, the story of the return of Christ was not a comforting story to me personally. I don't blame that on the tradition that I grew up in, and I certainly don't blame that on the family that I grew up in. Uh, But for me, as I heard these stories about Revelation, about what the end of times was going to look like, it was a really scary thought. See, on the one hand, I, I looked at that and I said, you know, there's this definite, distinct end coming, and I feel like I haven't done enough. I feel like I haven't seen enough. But underneath all of that is this is this haunting suspicion that I haven't been good enough. And so the idea of an end and a judgment and all of those things was a fearful idea because the images that I saw and the images that were conveyed to me, the stories that were told, were violent and vengeful and destructive. For me, there was no joy in the story of Christ's return. And as I grew and as I studied, I realized that this was a false story about God's kingdom. See, in this story, you have creation on one hand, and creation is at war with God. And the joy and the hope in that story is that eventually God is going to be victorious over creation. That at the end of that war, God is going to be victorious and all of those things, all of those created things that stood against him are going to be cast down. But here's the reality. Here's the truth. God is not at war with his creation. It's me. I'm the one that's at war with his creation. I'm at war with myself, I'm at war with my neighbors, I'm at war with the world around me, and I'm trying to be at war with God. That's what sin looks like in our lives. It alienates us, it puts us into conflict with all of the things around us that God intended for our good, that God intended to be a blessing, that God intended to be a means of grace, a way for us to be brought closer to God, to know God in a fuller and deeper way. 
So with everything else that's going on in the world around us, I wanted to take a moment and talk about what the book of Revelation is, what it's not, what it says, and what it doesn't say. Because I believe deeply that there is a profound hope and a world-changing, life-giving joy that is nestled in the midst of this book. The trouble for us is that we have all sorts of images that have been conveyed to us by popular culture. They've been conveyed to us by Christian celebrities, um, popular movies and book series and all of that. How do we cut away all of that superficial stuff? How do we get those images out of our head and begin to encounter Revelation as Scripture? How do we read Revelation in a way that we can encounter God and we can hear the Lord speaking to us? How do we learn to find the Gospel that's written in the book of Revelation? That's what I want to do. I want to take the next few weeks to talk about finding hope, finding joy, finding peace in the midst of the revelation of St. John. So this first week we're going to be talking about how we read Scripture. Eventually we're going to get into the book of Revelation, but to do that we need to understand what apocalyptic literature is. If we don't understand the kind of book that Revelation is, then we're going to make all kinds of assumptions about what it's saying and why it's saying those things, and those are going to lead us down a destructive and distracted path. We're going to misunderstand and misapply the things that John wants us to hear, that John wanted his original audience to hear. So to understand what I mean when I say apocalyptic literature, we need to take a moment and understand what the different genres of literature are. We need to make sure that we're reading scripture well before we begin learning how to read the book of Revelation well. Now for us as Anglicans, when we are learning about the faith, when we're coming into faith, we have a set of questions that are set up so that we can read scripture well together and so that we can understand what it means not just to be a Christian, but to be an Anglican Christian. And so when Anglicans talk about reading scripture, we say this, this is the, the definition that we have for reading scripture. Just as Holy Scripture was not given through private interpretation of things, so it must also be translated, read, preached, taught, and obeyed in its plain and canonical sense, respectful of the church's historic and consensual reading of it. Now that quotation comes from our catechism. A catechism means a series of lessons or lectures. Our catechism is called to be a Christian, and this is question number 34. If you look in the description of the podcast, you'll find um, a link to the discussion notes for today, and you'll find that whole quote that I just read written in those discussions. So when we approach scripture, what we're called to do is to translate, read, preach, teach, and obey it 
in its plain and canonical sense. Now, what do we mean by plain and canonical? When we say it's plain sense, here's what we mean. We're not interested in trying to trying to figure out what's happening in St. John's mind. We're interested in the words that he conveyed. Now, obviously, we understand that those words happen in a culture and they happen in a language. We don't want to suggest that we can understand those words by themselves, that, that apart from the rest of their context, they, 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 have, they, they have this one singular meaning but what we want to do is to not read our own assumptions into those texts. We want to make sure that, that the things in our own culture that go without being said aren't being placed on top of and used as uh, a blinder or a filter or a lens through which we understand those. We want to understand them in their plain sense. So the plain sense is absolutely culturally bound. But we believe that scripture, when it was written, was not written to be a secret code. That scripture was intended to communicate thoughts and ideas from the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to convey God's wishes, God's thoughts, God's teaching to God's people. That's the plain reading of the text. But we don't only read the plain reading of the text. We also read the canonical reading of the text. And what do we mean by that, the canonical reading of the text? Well, when we say canonical, what we mean is that the text of Scripture has a larger context. The books of Scripture don't happen just by themselves. They're not just one chapter in a very, very long book. There's a much larger context. There's an ongoing story. There are stories that inform that. There's images that inform that. There's an entire culture built around that. We're talking about the whole of Scripture. That's what canonical means. It means the whole. The whole of Scripture. And when we approach the whole of Scripture, we don't do it just based on our own feelings, but we ask, how have has the church read and received these texts? How does the church understand these texts? And how can we move forward? How can we understand these texts within the large scope of Scripture? See, the tricky thing for us is that when we talk about a Bible, we typically are looking at a book. I have a book right here on my desk. It's the Bible. And when I look at it, I say, this is the Holy Bible, and I can turn to different books of the Bible. But usually when I say a different book of the Bible, what, what I mean deep down is a different chapter, or maybe a, a larger chapter or a larger section. But here's the truth about the Bible that I'm holding in my hands. Here's the truth about the Bible that we read together. This is not a book. This is a collection of books. This book is, in and of itself, a library. Now, I use that image very intentionally. So I'm recording this discussion right now, sitting in my office. And in my office, I have lots of books around me. This is, this is where I keep part of my library. Part of my library is at home, and part of it's at the church. So when I look around this library, I see all kinds of different books. Over here on my shelf is a book by St. Augustine. It's called The Confessions. These were This is the, the story that he gave of his conversion to Christianity and his early growth in the faith. Now, if I was to pick that book up, 
I have to read that book in a specific way. This is a confession. This is one person telling his story. And he's telling his story in the third century. So I need to understand a little bit about the third century and what it was like to be a Christian and what it was like to be a Christian in North Africa in the third century in the Roman Empire. If I don't understand those things, then I'm going to bring my own assumptions and my own belief. I'm going to draw the wrong kinds of conclusions when I read that book. Now, right next to that book is a book that's called Where is the Lamb? This is a book that is ta- it, it talks about the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, which has for most religious cultures been a very difficult story to understand. And so this book is intended to allow all of the different faith traditions interpretation of that story to speak so that we can begin to understand how we as human beings have have wrestled with this very very difficult passage of scripture now above that i've got the chronicles of narnia by c.s lewis now if i was to grab the the silver chair that's my favorite of the chronicles of narnia if i was to grab the silver chair and i would i would sit down and read about uh you know the 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 young people and Puddleglum trying to, to rescue a lost prince. Well, this is C.S. Lewis and it's the Chronicles of Narnia, so I know that this is fiction, but it's also allegorical fiction. He's intentionally using images and icons and, and allegories in order to draw spiritual truths out of these fantastical stories. But do you see, the way that I read St. Augustine is going to be different than I read this book by James Goodman. It's going to be different than the way that I read this book by C.S. Lewis. And here's the trouble. A lot of times when we pick up our Bible, we assume that each book talks the same way that the book before it talked, without pausing to consider why was this written? Who was it written by? Who was it written to? What unique problems? What unique situations? What's the historical context? What language was it written in? So quickly we forget all about those things. Think about it when you pick up a newspaper. If you were to pick up a newspaper, you don't read that the same way I read the Chronicles of Narnia. Although, let's be honest, there are lots of newspapers that read sort of like the Chronicles of Narnia. They're just as fantastical as that is. But leaving that aside, you think about the the, the front page of your newspaper, and there's going to be... Uh, uh, a section that is just dealing with politics and if you turn to the inside page there's going to be local sports and if you turn to the the next page there might be a, a scientific discussion or there might be a page with recipes there's probably going to be a section talking about what's happening in the local faith communities and uh, you know if it's a very big newspaper there might be a section of comics you imagine if you were to to pick that up and you read in 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 the middle of this an article that was titled sharks eat cheetahs well the kind of article that is and the section of the newspaper that it's in changes what that article means because sharks eat cheetahs could be a fantastic little dessert to put together with the kids or it could have to do with a political discussion and maybe they're using uh, an analogy to to have a political discussion or maybe it's uh, a comic strip that you're reading or it could be that it's a a scientific discussion maybe there is a a, a place in the 
the Atlantic Ocean where cheetahs go swimming and sharks eat them. Or maybe it's sports teams who are playing. But do you see how the same headline can fit into each one of those different categories? And if we're not paying attention to the kind of category that it is, the kind of story that's being told, we can draw the wrong kinds of assumptions about what it is that the author is trying to tell us and what is happening. Now, think about the Bible for a moment. The Bible began being compiled between three and 4,000 years ago, but it was compiled as oral stories, as oral narratives. And then, sometime around 1000 BC, it began being put into writing. Now, the New Testament was completed somewhere between 50 and 100 AD. So what we're looking at is a period of time of over a thousand years of just writing. A thousand years of writing in between three and four different languages across innumerable cultures. We have to keep that in mind when we sit down to read the Bible. Otherwise, we're likely to make assumptions about the book that just simply aren't true. So if you're following along in the notes, we're going to talk about some of the major genres or the major groups or types of books that we find when we're reading scripture. So the first one that I have written down are books of the law. Now, what do I mean by books of the law? Well, primarily I'm talking about Leviticus, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, some some of Exodus, and there are, are other parts as well. But the books of the law are scripture that outline God's commandments to God's people. These are God's commandments to his people. So it's a collection of laws and instructions for people to live by. And the intention of these is so that it can address specific situations that are occurring within a specific culture. Okay, hear that again. Specific situations in a specific culture. Let's read an example. I'm in the 26th chapter of Leviticus right now. In Leviticus 26, it says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commands and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing, and you shall eat the bread to your full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. Now do you hear the covenant language that's happening? God is saying, this is who I am. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am your God. The other nations around you may have their own gods, but I am your God. I am the Lord. And so you don't put up other things, you don't put up idols, you don't worship things that aren't me. I am the Lord. I am your God. 
And if you walk in these commandments, if you maintain this relationship, if you uphold this covenant between us, then your land will overflow. There's a blessing that God promises to their life together as a community. You see, he gives them laws and instructions, but the laws and instructions aren't just there so that God can uh, be a, a, a busybody who's, who's constantly telling people you know, how to be and where to go. That's not the purpose at all. The purpose of the law is so that the people can live together well. So the next section that I want to talk about are historical books, or we might call them narrative books. Narrative books are books of the Bible that give retellings of real events. Now, we understand, of course, that these are purposeful retellings of historical events. They don't tell the entirety of the story. They tell the important parts of the story that are helping to tell the larger story. Think about the way that Exodus tells the story of God's people being set free. He doesn't give every single detail of every single day of the, of the journey through the wilderness for, for 40 years. He doesn't tell us all of those things. He tells us the important events that happened along the way because they help us to understand who God is and what kind of God he is and what kind of relationship he's calling us into and, and all of these things. It's tell, retelling these in a purposeful way. So these are historical events that are being retold with a specific purpose in mind. And that specific purpose is addressing those situations that have happened in the history of a group of people in order to make a point, in order to teach a lesson, in order to convey a truth about who God is. So the first large portion of the Old Testament would fall under this category. With, with the exception of the, the portions of the books that are law, you find historical uh, narrative sections in Genesis and Exodus, uh, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, in the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, all of those are, are part of this. In fact, you could even say that, that some of this way of writing is found in the Gospels, although the Gospels are a little bit different. We're going to talk about what makes Gospels uh, different from just narratives in just a few moments. But for an example for us, I'd like for us to read together from uh, the book of Judges. So I'm going to be reading in the 13th chapter from the book of Judges. This is about the birth of Samson. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children, and the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said to her, Behold, you are barren, and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now do you hear how the author of Judges is telling us a story? He gives us some background information about what's happening, 
But he does it. He doesn't just say, and then once upon a time there was a woman who conceived, and it was magical. He doesn't. He doesn't say that. He says that there was a specific time and a specific person in a specific area. It's an historical story, but it's an historical story that's intended to teach us or communicate to us or instruct us on a specific point. And that is that God's people turned away, and so the Lord gave them over to the people who were around them. He gave them over to idolatry and to sinfulness and to wickedness and to violence and to depravity. He turned them over to that, but he didn't leave them there. The story of Scripture over and over again is that God doesn't leave us. God doesn't abandon us. God doesn't turn us over forever. That God always comes to rescue his people. And that's what he does here. A child will be born who will be a Nazarite to God. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The next type of story, that, or the next type of genre that we read about here, are wisdom stories. Wisdom literature. So what do I mean by wisdom? Sometimes we talk about wisdom literature as poetry, uh, but that's not always completely, uh, co- completely accurate, because wisdom is certainly intended to be inspirational. Okay, it, It's absolutely intended to do that. But a lot of times, most of the time, oftentimes, wisdom literature is filled with sayings and filled with proverbs. So the book of Proverbs is an excellent, excellent description of, of, of this kind of literature. The whole purpose of this literature is to take and condense down sayings. Usually there are, there are idioms and stories and and popular cultural references uh, and they're all sort of distilled down and usually they're they're given to someone who was very important who's considered to be a very wise person and then those ideas those truths are communicated to us so as i said a perfect example of wisdom literature can be found in the book of proverbs so if we're to read from proverbs together we can see what that might look like we're going to read now from uh, proverbs chapter 9 This is what the author says. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. But if we read a little bit farther, we see whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and whoever reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Give instruction to a wise man and he'll be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he'll increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you will bear it alone. So do you see it begins by using poetic language. Wisdom has built a house. And look at this incredible house made of seven pillars. And she has she has set up a beautiful uh, feast to invite all of her neighbors in to come and sup. And then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go in and eat. And what does eating from wisdom look like? 
It looks like learning how to act correctly. It looks, it looks like simple, inspirational stories and sayings that are intended to help us to live a better life, to live as better people. That's the purpose of wisdom literature. So when we read from Proverbs and from Job and from Ecclesiastes, those, uh, those, those books are intended to give us principles, but not necessarily to give us promises. They're intended to be words and phrases that will help us to learn how to live well and maybe to live a little bit more comfortably with our neighbors. Now, the next section of scripture that we should talk about are psalms or the books of poetry. These are scriptural truths that are written in verse. So typically these are poetic lines, poetic lyrics that are written to be hymns or poems and they have a particular purpose they're intended for us to lift up our prayers to God to do that on an individual level but also to do that on a corporate level it's intended that we would read and sing and proclaim the Psalms the poetry together as God's people God's people lift their voices in prayer through the words of the Psalms in fact in our tradition as Anglicans we read from the Psalter constantly you know when I was growing up one of the suggestions that people often made is that if you didn't know what to read in Scripture then you should just grab the book of Proverbs and you can read one chapter of Proverbs every single day and and all and by the end of the month you'll have read through the entire book as Anglicans we have taken the book of Psalms and divided it up so that you can read or sing, if you uh, are so inclined, uh, five or six Psalms every single day. And so that by the end of the month, you'll have read through or sung through the entirety of the Psalter. All of these Psalms are intended to be a way for us as individuals and us as a community of faith to lift up our voices in prayer. And here's what's beautiful about the Psalms, what's unique about the Psalms, is that you have beautiful Psalms of praise and thanksgiving. Some of them celebrate God and, and sing his, his praise. And then you have laments on the side of that proclaiming to God that we are in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of trial and that we need him to reveal his providence, to reveal his presence, to reveal his love to us again. So these songs that are filled with confidence on the one hand are, song, are, are paired oftentimes side by side with psalms where we're calling God to be faithful to the promises that he made. Sometimes we retell historical stories and sometimes we are, are singing songs that are going to be prophetic. These are the words of God's people in prayer. So you can find those in, obviously, the book of Psalms. But we also find them in the Song of Solomon. We find them throughout the Old Testament, and we find them in the book of Lamentation. If you're following along, you can turn to the third chapter of Lamentation. We'll be in verse 25 through, uh, through 33, if you're reading along with me. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. 
Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart, or grieve the children of men. In our tradition at St. Aidan's, we read from the book of Lamentation once a year. We do that during the day on Good Friday. We lift up these cries not only uh, as we are lamenting uh, our own sin and our own brokenness, but as we are lamenting and giving voice to the sorrows and the burdens of Christ and of all of the martyrs. We're calling out to God to be faithful to the promises because his promise is that he's good to those who wait and so these psalms call us into faithfulness in the midst of trial and in the midst of joy in the midst of sorrow and in the midst of hopeful compassion they call us to trust in god and to trust in him by reciting over and over and over again his faithfulness to us The Psalms, more than anywhere else in all of Scripture, use that phrase, steadfast love. We've talked about that a lot at St. Aidan's. It's a critically important idea in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, that God's steadfast love, his unending love, his love that never fails, that never forgets, that never falters, that's the way that God loves And when we recite that love in the midst of our joy and in the midst of sadness, we set our hearts on the hope that we're not alone, that God is with us. That's the power of psalm. That's the power of poetry. Now, as we're walking through Scripture, the last uh, section or genre of Scripture that we find in the Old Testament is a genre of Scripture that is called prophecy. Now, for us as... Americans, uh, as Westerners living in the 21st century, we have to be cautious when we use that word prophecy. Because for us, when we use the word prophecy, we typically mean that somebody is going to make a prediction about something that's going to happen in the future, and then that thing is going to come true. And usually it's hidden and it's wrapped up in lots of complicated symbols and things. That's not how prophecy works in the Old Testament. Sometimes that's how it works in apocryphal literature. We're going to get into that in just a second. But that's not what prophecy is in Scripture. What prophecy is in Scripture is God's words being spoken through God's prophets. The oracles of God, the pronouncements of God, the commandments of God, spoken through human intermediaries. Okay, so when a prophecy is being uttered, God is speaking directly to God's people through a particular person at a particular time. That's what prophecy looks like. The purpose of it is not to reveal something in the future. The purpose is for God to shine his light on our actions right now. The purpose is for God to reveal our hearts and to show us the truth about the path that we're creating before ourselves. 
He's calling us away from our brokenness, from our sinfulness, and calling us back to faithfulness, calling us back to himself in his covenant. Let's read together from Isaiah. Isaiah is, is the prophet of prophets, uh, is sometimes the way that Isaiah is described. This is in chapter 6. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me. And in his hand was a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? You see, God issues a call on a specific person, and he calls him into a specific kind of ministry, and that ministry is to call God's people to repentance, to proclaim God's words to God's people. That is what prophecy is. Prophecy is God proclaiming his words to his people. Now, the entire last major section of the Old Testament is made up of prophets. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, uh, and the twelve minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All of these are stories about and words from men who were chosen by God to speak God's words, usually to God's people, sometimes to foreign people, sometimes to Gentiles, sometimes to pagans, sometimes to idolaters, but always those same words, calling people to repentance, telling them, if you do not turn from your deeds, that's what repent means, if you don't turn away, then this is the path of destruction that you've set for yourself and for your whole community. It's never just about calling one person back from error. It's always about calling people back into right living with one another and with God. Now, the next genre of scripture is called gospel. All right, and the gospel is simply a word that means good news. 
Okay, the, the, the word in Greek is uangel or evangel. It means good news. You means good, angel means news or proclamation. It's a good proclamation. In early English, there was a, a, another word that was, the, that was God's news, God's spell, which is where we get our word gospel from. So this is good news, but the gospel is a specific kind of uh, a kind of literature. It's it's called a, a life. The story in the gospel is a story about a life, and of course, what makes this the good news is that it's not just a life, but it's the life. This is the life of God incarnate. So they contain a mixture of narratives and sayings. We find the teachings of Jesus alongside the stories about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. The purpose of the gospel is to inform us, to tell us about Jesus, but also, and more importantly, to introduce us to Jesus. To allow us to be instructed so that we can grow in the faith, so that we can grow closer to God, who he is, the kind of person that he, that, that he is revealed in Jesus Christ. And each one of the Gospels does that in a little bit different way. The ancient church used the image of the, um, the four living creatures from the Old Testament, and it used each of those living creatures to describe each of the four Gospels. So the four living creatures were the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Those four creatures all represented the, the, the sum total of creation. And so the image that we use to describe each of those is that each one of those faces is one of the Gospels. One of the ways that the, that the Gospel writers, one of the ways that Scripture talks to us about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So Matthew is the lion. His story is about Jesus who is the king. Jesus who is the Messiah. Mark is the ox, because in Mark, Jesus, when he talks and teaches, becomes and takes on the role of the sacrificial servant, the one who goes before us and the one who lays down his life on our behalf. Luke is the image of the man, because Luke's story begins with the incarnation and stays with the incarnation throughout the entirety of the story. And John is the eagle, because the ancients believed that the eagle was the only creature in all of creation who could look at the sun without going blind. And that's what John does in John's Gospel. He looks directly into the sun, the sun of righteousness in this case. And he does so without going blind. He's able to communicate and convey and describe and incarnate God in the person of Jesus Christ, to each one of us in a unique and in an incredible and powerful way. We move on from reading the Gospels to reading the Epistles. Now, it's important for us to remember that the Epistles are letters. These are real letters written by real people to real people to deal with real issues. Okay? And I I want to make sure that we understand that, that when we turn to 1 Corinthians or Galatians or Philemon, when we turn to the epistles, we're hearing the words of the apostles spoken to their congregations. And so sometimes these are going to sound a lot like prophetic words. They're speaking God's words to God's people, but sometimes they're simply communicating to their friends. 
Paul does that over and over again, saying, make sure that you tell so-and-so that I miss him. Make sure that you tell sister so-and-so that I'll see her soon. I left my cloak. Would somebody send that to me? What an incredible gift to be able to hear the care that these pastors, that these shepherds use as they are caring for and reaching out to their flock. Sometimes they have hard words to say. Pastors often have hard words that they have to say, but more often than that, we see these beautiful and incredible images of God calling people to righteousness, calling people to holiness, calling people to love, calling people to service, calling the community back together over and over again to become God's people in the midst of the world. And so that finally brings us to the last genre of scripture, and that is apocryphal or apocalyptic literature. I think that the way that uh, one of my seminary professors, Dr. Mulholland, described it was best. In an apocalypse, which is just a Greek word that means in a revelation, in, in a revelation, the author is telling us about a vision that he has had. And that vision is an extra or a deeper consciousness. The author uses images and uses symbols from his culture and from his own background. He will often use phrases like like and as. He'll try to use simile and metaphor to help us to understand some of those. But the whole purpose of this is to reveal to us and illustrate an ultimate reality. The author wants you and I, when we hear from, when we hear this apocalypse, to understand something larger about the story around us. When the apostle writes a letter to the people in Corinth, he writes to them to explain to them, here's a problem that you're facing, here is the truth about you as a community. Now live out the truth and push away the lie and the falsehood. But when the apostle writes about the apocalypse that he sees. He wants us to understand the world beyond the world around us. He wants us to understand in a larger scope, in a larger context, what is happening so that we can trust in who God is and what God is doing. Compare these two passages. This first one is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Here's what he writes. He says in, in verse 1, chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every time of prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, he communicates directly with them. He talks to them about the life that they share and calls them to holiness and to participation in that life and worship. But if we look at the book of Revelation in chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, this is what John says. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in, in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Do you see the difference in the two ways that those are communicated? John tells us, I was praying, and while I prayed, I had a vision. And the Lord said, Write what you see down and send it to the churches in your care. And then he encountered an angelic divine presence. We don't know yet quite who it is. He just tells us what he was like, because he doesn't have words to describe what he saw. So he simply uses similes and metaphors to help us to understand what's happening. He uses images to help us to wrap our heads around what encounter he had. It's not less true or less accurate or less straightforward than the communication from Paul to the church in, in in Philippi. But it's a different kind of communication. And if we read the book of Revelation the way that we read the Gospels or the Epistles or the books of law or wisdom or Psalms or prophecies or narrative, if we read the book of Revelation in that way, then we are likely to misread what we're encountering. Now there are lots of other kinds of uh, of of genre, smaller genres that are found, and 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 we list some of those. There's genealogies and allegories and sayings and riddles. All of those things are part of the scriptural story. But what I want us to focus our attention in on is is what is what is an apocalypse and what is trying to be conveyed. So when we get together again next week, we're going to spend our time talking about what is and isn't apocalyptic literature, and how does apocalyptic literature work in the history of the church, and what does that mean, and how does that help us to read the book of Revelation well, because apocalyptic literature is unique to that particular time, that particular place in history, and there's a temptation for us to read it the way that we read prophecy and the way that we read theology books and the way that we read fantasy novels. And none of those things is going to help us to understand what John is trying to say to the seven churches and what John is trying to say to us right now. The purpose of this study is for you and I to hear the words that St. John gives, to enter into the vision, the revelation that St. John receives, and then to hear the words of hope and comfort and joy and peace that God is proclaiming to us in the vision that he gives to St. John the Divine. So that's going to end our discussion for this week. Next week we're going to talk, as I said, more in depth about what apocalyptic literature looks like. Now before you go, I would like to recommend a couple of resources to you. The resource, These resources are going to form the, the 
foundation for the study that we are sharing right now. And I'm going to include them in, uh, in the description of this podcast so that you can go back and find those books if you would like to read more about what we're talking about and, and expand your own understanding about, uh, about the way that the church historically has read the book of Revelation. Uh, you'll be able to find those there. So the first one that I'm going to recommend is a book by John Barton called A History of the Bible. Now this is a, a, a an intense book. It's it's a hard book to get through. He has a, a shorter version of that. I'll link that in the description as well. Um, but this is a fantastic overview of how we got the Bible that we have, and it especially helps us to understand how uh, each of those genres of scripture are used and how they developed. When we're talking about the the Revelation of Saint John, the first book that I'm going to reference is George Caird, and this is a wonderful. Uh, older commentary called The Revelation of St. John the Divine. The two books that we're going to spend most of our time reading are a book by Stephen Smalley called The Revelation to John and a book by Joseph Trafton called Reading Revelation. Those books are going to be the books that we spend the most amount of time working in because they spend, they, they do a a, a better job of outlining and diagramming and explaining the imagery and the storytelling style of St. John than any other scheme that I have uh, that, that I have encountered in the past. And alongside those, we're going to be reading from Eugene Peterson and his book, Reverse Thunder. If you want to read a book that will fill you with joy and excitement as you read the book of Revelation, pick up Eugene Peterson's book, Reverse Thunder. And then alongside that, at, in our last session, we'll be spending some time looking at the thoughts of Scott Hahn and his book, The Lamb's Supper, what it means to look at the book of Revelation and to find Uh, Christian worship in that particular text. Alongside those books, there are a couple of other resources that I want to recommend that are a little bit larger than that. One is a series of discussions by Kenneth Myers. Kenneth Myers is a retired Anglican bishop, and he has a book that is called The End is Near, or Maybe Not. Uh, And also he has a series of lectures that are available uh, through his Facebook page. In addition to that, uh, the series that I mentioned earlier in in the podcast today is uh, is a series by Robert Mulholland. He was a professor at the seminary that I attended at Asbury Theological Seminary, and he taught a course on the book of Revelation. The course number was NT, New Testament, NT666, because... They just thought that that was the funniest thing ever. Uh, But what is amazing is that this entire course by Robert Mulholland is available for free on iTunes. So if you go over to iTunes, you can enroll in a seminary-level course on the book of Revelation, understanding the book of Revelation, along with uh, reading lists, and you can you can either listen to it as a podcast or you can watch it as a video. So I highly recommend that if you are interested in expanding your understanding of the book of Revelation and the 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 powerful message that it has of hope and solace and joy and peace in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of misunderstanding. Promises that Jesus is with us and that he is right now and always has been right beside us. But the final consummation of history will not be everything being thrown apart but rather it will be all things being made new 
in Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the Incarnation. That's the promise of Pentecost. That's the promise of God's kingdom. And that is the promise of the book of Revelation. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.